Well, good afternoon, everyone. Certainly a beautiful Sabbath here. A lot different than it is in some places at the moment. I just read, was it on the Weather Channel? I don't know. Seattle in the northwest had had about 25 inches of rain in one day, apparently. And they're uh, suffering with floods and all kinds of problems up there. I thought, was that a misprint? That, that sounds like too much water. Maybe it's 25 inches of snow, but I uh, still that's a lot of snow uh, in one day. And back in the northeast, they're having trouble. And here we sit in the 50s with the sun shining, and I'm thankful for it. Glad God put us in the southwest at times. Once in a while in July, I don't know whether I'm quite as happy about that as I am at the moment. But, uh, overall, I'm very happy he's put us where he has for the reasons he has and for what this area is is and is going to mean. We have something coming up this coming week, which is, I feel, not just something to pass over, uh, to observe perfunctorily, if you will, but to deeply consider, and I will explain why. This coming Wednesday, the 12th, is the feet fast of the tenth month, and it represented the beginning of the siege against Jerusalem. And, of course, that is in ancient history, but we need to understand that these days are very, very important for us. So let's understand this. Uh, this is kind of, in a way, even though it comes at the end of, toward the end of God's year, the tenth month, uh, it began a siege against physical Jerusalem, which would wind up with the fast of the fourth month uh, and the taking of Jerusalem, the fast of the fifth month then representing uh, the desecration of the temple afterward, and then... Uh, the fast of the seventh month, the killing of Gedaliah, who had been appointed to be in charge of the remnant of God's people. Now, how does that all fit in with the church today, and what does all this mean? I, I want to spend a little time at the beginning of this sermon to go into this, uh, because there are some things that have been lining up, I think, now for the last four years, and some more things appear to be lining up in a very, very, I think, dramatic fashion, which could impact you and me and the remnant of the church, and the rest of the church for that matter, uh, very wonderfully or very frightfully, depending on which you're in. Now, this was a siege against Jerusalem. I think we've established pretty much over the years, but I want to go back to Hebrews 12 and reestablish maybe, uh, or at least freshen in our minds, a statement that is made here by Paul. <clears throat> He's talking about the difficulty with getting over bitterness and repenting and uses Esau as an example and 
he refers to the old covenant and Mount Sinai and a physical covenant that was made with Israel. He says, don't be like Esau. Uh, all he had to come to was Mount Sinai. The old covenant is all he had. And he had difficulties with his brother and never apparently got over it. But Paul then informs us that we're not dealing with Mount Sinai anymore. And those prophecies of the Old Testament uh, were fulfilled upon our fathers, as we'll see in Zechariah 1. But that fulfillment is done. And what happened to the Old Covenant? Christ did what? He divorced ancient Israel for her whoredoms of many kinds and types. So that marriage is gone. It is defunct. It is broken. It is ended. Now, Israel went for some time without any covenant then, right? There was no covenant anymore when Christ walked the face of the earth. It had already been dissolved. And yet... The Pharisees and Judaism at the time felt that they still had that relationship with God. And Christ told them, no, you don't. And he called Judaism a lot of very vituperative names, about as low as you can get. And said that any proselytes they made would be several times as Sons of hell that they were. I'm paraphrasing. And then he told them at the end of chapter 24 of Matthew, or 23, excuse me, that he would have nothing more to do with them until they accepted both him and the ministry that he has sent. Now, for the most part, they never have. We do have today a few Messianic Jews who still keep the Sabbath, but almost in all other areas are still, or have simply converted to Protestantism, which is not the truth. So, the Messianics have made one small move in the right direction by getting rid of Judaism, which is a pagan religion. It is not godly whatsoever. They made their own writings, and they follow them instead of the Bible for the most part, just like the Mormons have the Book of Mormon, and they follow it instead of the Bible. Rarely does a Mormon pick up a Bible. Rarely does a Jew pick up the New Testament. He may do the Old Testament. You know what? That's done. Now, the laws of the Old Testament and God's way as expounded there is still valid. But the religion of the Jews and of ancient Israel is done through the divorce, which was a spiritual thing. Now, Mr. Armstrong started going off in a wrong direction when he began paying attention to the Jews in Israel. He didn't know it because he thought Jerusalem was still in the Middle East. 
And he thought that those were the children of God. And he was fairly proud of the fact that he felt he could trace his genealogy back uh, to David as and being a Jew. And then, after the church began to come apart, some began doing messy or Judah parts of Judaism with the dancing and the music and the various things and paying attention to Judaism because they saw the church was destroyed. So then they began watching and listening to and adapting to some of the things of the religion of Judaism, which is very similar to beginning to adapt to some of the things of Catholicism. There's no difference. They're pagan religions. So Christ said he'd have nothing more to do with them. Well, he laid two conditions there in Matthew 23. One was, except me, and the other was, except those whom I have sent. Now, the Messianics have gone one notch over by beginning to accept Christ to some degree. Not much of what he said, but his name. With mostly <clears throat> Protestant doctrines, which they think, I guess, are Christ-like. But they have not, in any form or fashion that I've ever heard of, begun to accept the ministry that God set up with the apostles and then reestablished in the end time through Herbert W. Armstrong. They're not going there. They're going to mainstream Protestantism to pick up their new covenant religion, as they probably would term it. So they haven't complied with what Christ told them at all. So we have nothing to do with the Jews or Judaism, even as Christ does not and will not until they totally repent and fulfill what he told them back then. Now let's go on down in Hebrews 12. Verse 21, and so terrible was the sight, speaking of Sinai, <clears throat> that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. He was right there on the mountain. And it scared him. But you, who is that? He's speaking to the New Testament church here, founded under the apostles. You, church members are come unto Mount Zion. Brings in Mount Zion immediately. Now, Mount Zion stands for a lot of things in God's plan and in His purpose and in the future. <coughs> but it says the church has come to Mount Zion. Now, you and I have come to the Mount Zion that the Jews... The Messianics, the Protestants, the Catholics, or the Shintoists, or nobody have recognized. So God has led his New Testament church in a very small way now to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God. It's desolate. Been desolate now for many generations. But he's brought us to it. Why? 
to build it. To build it. Now, I'm speaking here of these physical things, but they also have a greater type in Mount Zion coming from heaven, in the New Jerusalem coming from heaven, and all those things in the final fulfillment. But there is a fulfillment with the church here at the end, and Paul is not addressing the final fulfillment. Here he's addressing the church. Okay? You, the church. The heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem is from God. God established it, took Abraham there, and he's going to send the heavenly Jerusalem as a final fulfillment of what he has done here on this earth. And he's doing these things again just before the end in a physical way as a witness against the world and as a witness of what God is going to shortly thereafter do for the world. We are in a very critical and important spot. And to an innumerable company of angels. You think we're going to need the help of God's angels in the next few years? Yeah, I think so. The church has come to them. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Now, the only firstborn that has been born is Christ. But here he's speaking of the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So here he's referring to the church. Christ being the head of the church, but the general assembly is still on the earth and has not ascended to heaven by any means. So he makes it clear here, he's speaking to the church, who are standing before all of these things also on a spiritual level. Church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, not there yet, just written there, name in the book of life, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all. So our judgment is still upon us, right? He's, God is the judge, and we're before him. So we are here, not spirit yet, but being judged on a daily basis. And to the spirits of just men made perfect. Hebrews 11. Those men were not perfect, but in death now, they are perfected. Because as they come up in the first resurrection, they'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So their next thought will be in Perfection. They didn't die in perfection, but God has forgiven all their sins, put his seal upon them, and they are waiting there, in that sense, in a perfectly clean, perfectly sinless environment. Anybody who's dead in the ground isn't sinning. And their sins have been forgiven them, and they'll be resurrected to honor and glory. So we are brought before them as well. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. 
Now, he began the new covenant with the New Testament church, a whole new marriage agreement. We're still in the engagement period, not been married yet, but being tested to see if we can come up to the qualification to become truly a bride. So, not a bride yet, but engaged. And to the blood of sprinkling, Christ in his death, his shed blood, was sprinkled for us, that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel sacrificed didn't mean a whole lot except to Abel. Christ was sacrificed, and it means a whole lot to a whole lot of people. So we need to realize whom we sit before today as the beginning of the end-time iteration of God's true church. Now, we've already been through the first phase of it. The former temple, as Haggai and Zechariah clearly point out, and it has been destroyed and has to be rebuilt. Now, the world's about to come apart. When's it going to be rebuilt? When does this go? How does this fit? I watched some video last night and heard some songs that were done back in the earlier days of Ambassador College by the Ambassador College Chorale and by the young ambassadors after that. They, they didn't exist when I was there, but the Chorale did, and I was part of it. So it, it choked me up to hear some of that singing, the Hallelujah Chorus, Onward Ye People. I hear that music, and I, it overcomes me. Because we sang it to the great God, and we meant it, and it was very emotional then, and as I look back, it still carries a lot of weight with me. And they had pictures there of the auditorium as it had been built, and during one of the performances, they panned over or outside to the plaque on the wall showing how it had been dedicated to the great God. It's interesting how that term came up. It had been used in the book of Ezra, how they were building the house of the great God. Could have used different words, the Almighty, the Lord of hosts, Different names for God the Father and for Christ could have possibly been used there, Christ being the high priest of, of it, and God overall. But here in the end time, Herbert Armstrong, for, I, didn't, I don't know, but for whatever reasons, may have read that in Ezra and picked up on it and named it the great God, or after the great God. That has been done again in January on the second Sabbath of January in 1992, uh, Church of the Great God was born. Now that was almost 30 years ago. Next week will be the 30th anniversary, three times ten. 
I find that very interesting. And that one was named after the great God, Church of the Great God. Did God have a hand in that? I believe he did. I truly believe he did. But in looking at those videos, I recognize the different buildings, Ambassador Hall, Mayfair, Grove Terrace, Manor Del Mar, where I lived, uh, various of the other dorms, the gymnasium, the, the uh, administration building, and of course, the auditorium. Places where I lived, walked, ate, slept, talked, went to classes, and it was magnificent, utterly magnificent. Ambassador Hall was the home of Hewlett C. Merritt, one of the early millionaires. I guess they didn't have billionaires back then uh, in this nation. And he had imported the finest woods from all over the world. You walked into that building and saw the rosewood and some of the various exotic, rare woods that were there. And it was breathtaking. It, it was just, it was beyond comprehension. I hadn't seen stuff like that. I'd seen pines and oaks and things we have, but I hadn't seen things like that. That was just breathtaking. Manor Del Mar, somewhat the same way. Not quite as exotic, but almost. And I lived there two different years. One of the finest homes ever built on the face of the earth I got to live in. And clean the toilets and the showers in <laughs> as a janitor. What a magnificent building. And I'm not just blowing smoke at you. Those were some of the finest buildings with the finest materials that have ever been built on the face of this earth. And today, the things they're building do not even come close. Not even the finest $30 million mansions come close to the quality that was in those buildings with materials that probably are not even available today, and if they are, nobody could afford them. And what I'm leaning up to is I saw that destroyed. I saw it taken apart, building by building. I happened to be driving by one day. I wanted to go by the campus some years ago. I don't remember which year. Six, seven, eight, ten years ago, whenever it was, when I was down there. And there was a wrecking ball that day. I saw it swinging as I drove down uh, Orange Grove Boulevard, tearing down the Loma D. Armstrong Educational Center right next to Ambassador Hall, knocking it to the ground in symbolic of what all else was done there. Big Sandy, torn apart, brickets, wood, sold out, gone. That was a fine place too. Wonderful buildings. Big Sandy had some lovely buildings, but they didn't come close, not even in the same breath 
is those in Pasadena. All destroyed. Gone. Very interesting. Here we are, and that was the former temple. It was destroyed. And there's been a siege on the church. Have you noticed that? For quite some time now. We became poignantly aware of it, perhaps in the late 80s, early 90s, as it had begun to come apart. Even right after Herbert Armstrong's death in 86, they immediately began to change and go back to Protestant ungodly doctrines through Joe Dukach and his son and others that were there that went along with it. So I noticed it immediately after he died. Makeup went out, went back in the window. Uh, Sabbath was basically done away with. Tithing, very for a very short while, tithing was disallowed uh, because Joe said that the income would go dramatically up because people would be giving of their love and their free hearts, and therefore the income would go up. And it dropped like a rock, and he reversed himself and says, you must tithe. <laughs> but, but it was on a downhill slide and sliding very rapidly from 1986 on. Herbert Armstrong died January 16th, 1986. I think there's a type there of Gedaliah, because that was kind of a remnant of the church under Herbert Armstrong, much bigger than the in, the last one is going to be, but still pretty small compared to the Catholics and the Methodists and the Mormons and whoever else. But evidence points that he probably had a pillow put over his mouth and was murdered, just as Gedaliah was. And I think that all those fasts have something to do with the end-time church, Okay? Zechariah is an end-time book, if ever there is one. Daniel, Revelation, Haggai and Zechariah certainly are, because they're talking about the last leadership of the end-time church. And God, in the book of Zechariah, brings up these facts that you have been keeping, but we weren't. So we started. Because they're in there, and if they're in the end time book, if you will, then they have meaning for the end time church. Now the final fulfillment of Gedaliah is still coming up, where the beast and the false prophet will kill the two who have witnessed against them. So there's a killing of the leaders of God's church still in the future. And many of the things from the former temple under Herbert Armstrong are, same, are the same as they are in the latter temple. I think he was killed. So then, with that background, what does the siege mean? You and I have been living through it for quite some time. When did it start, and when will it end? 
I've been more concerned about when it will end than I have been with when it started, frankly, (laughs) because that's a long time ago. Some of you weren't even born then. Let's review something. In 1981, I went to, I got an appointment with Mr. Armstrong to talk about some issues that I had on the table at the time. And I've told you about this, but I want to do it again for a purpose. 1981. Got into the meeting, my wife and I went in. And there were four people in the room, Herbert Armstrong, Joe Dukach, and us. And we never did really get around to why I had asked for the appointment and traveled all the way from Montana to get there for it. Never really got to it because Herbert Armstrong was the kind of person who had dogged determination. Uh, in some respects, in that way, he reminded me of Jacob hanging on to Christ. And I will not turn loose. <clears throat> so if something was on his mind, he would not turn loose of it to consider something else. Because his mind would be focused on that. And if it was focused, good luck trying to change it. Because that's where he was headed. And that kind of persistence stood him in good stead, really, from the time he was called through the building of the church. Because a lot of men would have given up with some of the things he faced. But he didn't give up. He hung on like a pit bull. So, going into that meeting, I had in mind what I wanted to talk about. And he had in mind what he wanted to talk about. Okay, who won that one? (coughs) He wanted to talk about his successor. Think of the book of Esther here a little bit. We may get to it here in a minute. Haman wanted to be the successor to the king. He had been plotting and planning that for quite some time, but it hadn't happened yet. Maybe we got to Esther right away. But it hadn't happened. Been working on it, been working on it. And he hated this Jew, Mordecai, who was a possible successor. Maybe not. But he was a Jew, and that was enough for him to hate him, because he was hanging around the door of the palace. And Haman wanted to run the palace, and he didn't want that... Jew out there, whatever he thought of it. It isn't explained completely, but Mordecai must have had something about him, an intelligence, a knowledge, a presence that was a threat in some form to to Haman. And that became very pronounced as the story continued. But this plot, this planning, had been going on for some time, and nothing really came of it until it came to a head, and Esther pointed out who the problem was. 
Haman had claimed that he was not the problem, it was somebody else. And he had made a gallows to hang Mordecai on. So Mordecai was, however the story was going, a major threat to Haman, for sure. And maybe Esther, the queen, being kin to Mordecai, that could have been the connection a little bit, because he, Haman wanted to be king, and here she was, at a certain point, the queen. So he had to get rid of the king and Esther to be king himself, and that meant that Esther's uncle probably had to go too. Don't know just how the conspiracy was working, but it was a working. And then came the time when she pointed out who the real problem was. And then Haman died. We had someone right here who was actually the one who began the withholding of rent. I don't know whether you'd know who it was or not, but Somebody told me recently he was the first one that came to him about it. You know what it started over? Five dollars. Five dollars. We'd been asked to give five dollars toward the use of dumpsters. And, or at least... $5 out of what people were paying on their lease, I think is the way it was, was designated to pay for the dumpsters. Well, they were $80 a month apiece, and we'd gotten by with one. It got running over at times, and Nelson or occasionally I would take the New Holland and go over there and smash it down so people could put stuff in. And then I thought, well, it's getting where it's a bit of a problem. Let's get two. And I told the group in a meeting, well, I'm going to get another dumpster, and uh, that'll relieve us somewhat. Well, this individual believed that he had been promised a second dumpster, and we had one for a while. And then I decided some people had left. I thought, we can get by with one. Why spend the extra 80 uh, a month for two if we can get by with one okay? And uh, so I got rid of one. Well, then this individual in a public meeting said, well, I was promised two dumpsters. So what he did was started withholding $5 from his lease every month. Paid 95 instead of 100 Because he felt he'd been promised that and therefore he deserved it. And that was his $5 since he didn't have another dumpster. And that began a process in his mind whereby he began to feel that we don't have the right kind of government around here. We're not getting what we're promised. We're not getting what we ought to have. And I'm upset about it. So he started forming a corporation with the purpose of managing church, this church's finances. And he got very upset when I went back from 
a congregation of, uh, let's see, a congregation of the church of God is what somebody insisted we use. It had started out as simply a congregation of God, which is where I wanted it. But this person was getting upset, so that, well, rather than offend, we can put church in there. I don't like that term if you look into it a little bit. But I had. Well, this person had started this corporation using a church, a congregation of the church of God. Meantime, I had changed it back to a congregation of God. And that upset him because it wasn't the same name that he was putting on his corporation to run this place. And told me so. He says, why did you change it? Well, maybe God wanted it changed <laughs> back to what it had been. I didn't want it to be pretentious. Just a congregation of God's people. Not the Philadelphia or not some great pronouncement, just some of God's people. So then he began withholding the whole lease and went around getting other people to withhold the whole lease until a whole bunch of people were doing it. And that's what started this whole thing and led to others eventually filing lawsuits because they decided this lease isn't any good we need to own. We already quit paying our lease, so now let's own it. You know, I never intended for any of us to own any of it. It's God's. And the very fact that we didn't have it surveyed at the beginning, we just stretched out tapes in the snowstorm and used the little 22 scope to get these lots all laid out. <coughs> and it was far from perfect. But it was essentially an acre, and we put pegs there so everybody knew where they could plant their vine and fig tree. But now they want it surveyed because they want to own it, not just their lots. They want to own it all. And in a deposition, three or four years ago, whatever it's been, I was offered 200000 if I would pay off the mortgage, put 100000 in my pocket, and abandon you and give it all to them so that they would have their lots and your lots and the whole 110 acres. And I didn't give it a moment's consideration. We put this here for God's use and for His purposes. That's the only reason it exists. That's why I'm still here. That's why you're still here. There's a purpose. But anyway, I was told, well, this person was not doing this out of rebellion. They were doing it out of protection. Trying to protect the church from me. Did Korah think what? We need to protect this Israel from Moses. We need better leadership here. Moses isn't giving us what we need. In his mind, he was not rebelling. He was improving. God didn't do the right job. He shouldn't have appointed Moses. He should have appointed me because I can do a better job. 
And I can have two dumpsters. Same attitude exactly. Israel needs protected from Moses. I ain't Moses. But the attitude is the same, is what I'm trying to point out. I believe he was struck dead for a rebellion in the same life of Korah. Now, let's get back to where we were. In a meeting with Herbert Armstrong and Joe DeCotch. And Mr. Armstrong started saying, I've been wrestling with who's going to be my successor for a long time, and he had been, and it wasn't the first time he'd brought it up. Because he looked around at what was there, all the different evangelists and leaders and so on, and he saw flaws in every one of them. So we started naming them in front of me, just a church pastor, who am I? It didn't matter who was his audience, what was on his mind is what he wanted to discuss. It didn't matter if you were the scum at the bottom of the barrel, if you were within range, you were going to hear what he had to say. So he started going down the list of all the evangelists. Al Fortune can't do it. Uh, Ted was out by then. He couldn't have done it anyway. Uh, and he just went down, David Andy and, and the Cole brothers, and just going down the list of the evangelists. They can't do it. Stan Rader can't do it. And then Joe was sitting here, and he said, and Joe DeCotch can't do it. Oh, he saw flaws in him as well. So he was fighting a real conundrum there. What do I do? I'm getting old. I'm getting feeble. What do I do? And I felt inspired at that point to get on to his subject. <laughs> forget, forget mine. But what he was saying triggered a thought about the book of Thessalonians and how the uh, man of sin would stand in the temple of God. I said, Mr. Armstrong, you remember that in Thessalonians, of course, where it says the man of sin is not going to stand in the Catholic Church. He's going to stand in the temple of God. He's going to stand in the church of God. And he grabbed that right out of the air. Wham! He hadn't thought of it from that standpoint before. And he immediately says, well, maybe that's Stan Rader. Well, Stan Rader wasn't in the room. I'm sorry. And Mr. Armstrong had been defending Stan Rader. He knew Stan was not right. And the ministry knew, out in the field, the Stan had problems. <coughs> I knew from the time I was this tall, the Stan Raider had problems. He would come to the Feast of Tabernacles in Big Sandy, which is the only place you could go at the time, and give a financial report. And us teenagers, the minute he would walk up to the podium, would begin elbowing each other. 
We didn't trust that man at all. He had dark glasses on all the time, so you couldn't see his eyes, and he spoke with somewhat of a lift. And we just didn't trust him at all. Now, it was his oily way. It was his glasses. I don't know, but we just didn't. And I never got over it. I haven't yet. But Mr. Armstrong realized at that point that he was a snake. But he hadn't been willing to admit it publicly because Stan had been around since I was a little guy. And he had great influence. And I think that he had also orchestrated the church being taken over by the state of California, along with his other Edomite lawyer friends, because he wanted the whole thing. So Mr. Armstrong was aware of this on whatever level. So he immediately said, Stan, and I don't know whether he'd said that in private before, probably so, because he did suspect him, but he hadn't done it. He had been defending Stan to the ministry and to the church up to that point. But that day he said it. Maybe Stan's the man of sin. Turns out, the man of sin was sitting beside him that day, and he said that day that Joe DeCotch can't do it. Okay? I think it was being pointed out by God to Mr. Armstrong right then and there, with that subject on the table, that the man who was sitting there was the one. Kind of like Haman before the king. Kind of like Haman and Esther before the king. And when it was finally pointed out who it really was, as opposed to whom others thought it was, the plot was out in the open. Now I'm going through this because I feel that there may be an important message here. Partially in the timing. That was in 1981, and I had no business being part of that, except that later on in time, God gave me some understanding that he just simply didn't give anyone else, and hasn't to this day. So perhaps he was at that point using my presence to point something out to Mr. Armstrong that was important. Because I think Joe DeCotch was behind Mr. Armstrong's murder. And I think this whole thing has to do with the end time church, as I said. And there is a fulfillment here in the end time of all these prophecies because they're written in Zechariah and Haggai and other places. Now start counting from 1981, and count, let's pick a number. How long was Moses out in the desert, wandering around, not being blessed, people dying, carcasses falling in the desert? How long was he out there? Forty years. 
40 years. That is, in the Bible, a number of tribulation, of trial, of testing, and so on. We all are familiar with that. All right, start in 1981, and just for drill, count 40 years. Where do you come up? 2021. Did Mr. Armstrong beginning to think about a siege within the church and someone defiling from within the church, standing in the temple of God in place of God, he hadn't thought of that until 1981 when it was pointed out to him and he immediately picked up on it and realized that there was validity there because that's what Thessalonians said. He didn't know who to point the finger at specifically quite yet. But the man who was to become that was sitting there and heard it. And I think that is important. Stan Rader wasn't sitting there. Joe was. And I already knew Joe didn't understand the truth. Never had. I had an office just down the hall from his, above Sturgis Pharmacy, across from the Hall of Administration, as a pastor there in the L.A. Basin. They gave me an office there to use. And he was the one at that time Mr. Armstrong held up as giving widows Bible studies and taking care of the widows, but he hadn't been raised in rank or anything at the time. But I would sit there and hear him counseling with somebody two doors down. And it amazed me how little of God's truth Joe Koch understood. He would be trying to expound a doctrine to someone, and he couldn't get it right. He didn't understand it. He didn't get it. How long did it take after Mr. Armstrong died that the whole church began to realize Joe didn't get it? I knew it ahead of time because I sat and listened to him. And I thought, well, maybe God's using him just to help the widows and everything is okay, even though he doesn't get it. But he started changing doctrines back to Protestantism just as soon as he got hold of the reins. Well, is that the day that God began counting 40 years? It was about five years later before he actually took charge, but he was plotting and planning clear back then to take over. He had wormed his way into Mr. Armstrong's good graces and become kind of a right-hand man to him, as Haman had come into the king and become kind of a right-hand man to him. But the plot was there all along to take over. And I have evidences of that in memory, going to Pasadena and being around his secretary and being around him and the office and the way things were done. To me, it was obvious that Joe DeCoch wanted to be the successor. Of course, others did too. I recognized Raymond Cole as one of those. One of those Mr. Armstrong said can't do it because of the way he acted and the way he treated me. 
He knew I was not a liberal, and I was out doing two churches, El Monte uh, and San Bernardino, and John Reitenbaugh was down in Long Beach in that area. And there was upset, this was in the mid-70s, there was upset in the churches around Pasadena and come to find out across the nation for that matter. And there was a rebellion of the ministry and then a big one in 79. But the only congregations in the L.A. Basin, as I perceived it, that didn't have serious problems were the ones that John Reitenbaugh and I were pastoring. The rest of them had a lot of these seditious things going on. And they were pulling different ministers in to go to the uh, Fuller's Theological Seminary to learn Greek and Hebrew and Protestantism, if you will. And I wasn't going to go to Fuller's Seminary. Well, Raymond Cole was the district superintendent at that time of the L.A. Basin Churches. So he calls me in, and I'd been in for classes three or four years before. He says, well, we're going to bring you back into uh, for a year uh, of study, Fuller Seminary being part of it. And I said, why? My churches are doing fine. Everything's going okay. We don't have any rebellions going on. Uh, so it's not that. Why are you going to do this? Raymond Cole had a great capacity for being able to talk for an hour and not say a thing, uh, which he then did. And he never told me why. But I kind of knew. Uh, because I knew he was making a play to take over. So I marched out of his office and down to Les Stockers, and David Andean was the superintendent of ministers at the time, and Les Stocker worked right under him to help uh, determine who should go where and so on, which church they should be over, and kind of human resources or uh, managing the ministry and deciding where they would go. So I went down to Les's office, I knew him, and I said, Les, I want out of here. I want to go to the mountains. I, I, I don't want big city, and I don't want big city churches, and I don't want all this stuff going on in Pasadena. I want away from it. So he said, oh, well, we got an opening in Farmington and Durango, and I think we're going to have one up in Idaho. So I said, whichever comes up first, I want out of here. And then I think I talked to Dave Annian and Al Fortune about it one day in Dave's office uh, and told them that I would love to have a transfer. Well, Idaho opened up first, and I ran down to Les's office and says, I want to go. Well, he said, okay. So I got out of that mess. But what I'm trying to get across to you is that there were undercurrents from different ones 
because they all saw Herbert Armstrong getting older and more feeble day by day. And being human, they all wanted up the corporate ladder to the top. So this was just one example of it with with uh, Raymond Cope. But I didn't want any part of it. By then, I didn't want to be an evangelist. By then, I didn't want to be a district superintendent. I just wanted to get out of there. And God granted that. Anyway, I think that 40 years could be significant because it ends uh, now, end of 21, beginning of 22, somewhere in there. 40 years is up. Well, I think that's kind of the length of time that we've been wandering in the desert, in the wilderness. Because even from the time that that meeting occurred in 81, Joseph Tkach was influencing Mr. Armstrong very heavily. Very heavily. (coughs) I was there with him day in and day out. And the minute he got Mr. Armstrong dead... He started going back to Protestantism, which is what he had always believed anyway, and never did understand the truth. So he defiled the sanctuary just as soon as he could. He was waiting in the wings to make wholesale changes as soon as possible. And here we are, 40 years from there. Is it possible that this marks the end of that, and it isn't long until God begins to turn it around and give us, in that sense, a promised land, Jerusalem, Zion, this area, uh, to do what he needs done. I think that's very possible. Now, I think that we've seen, we've been there several times, the 65 years of Isaiah 7 accomplished, and this nation Ephraim became dysfunctional from the end of 2019 through 20 and 21 on, where we cannot organize a marbles game. And the 430 years, which I believe began at Roanoke, also ended in the fall of 2017. And that's the only numbers I can come up with anywhere that seem to fit the 430 years that God said what happened, and then that this thing would end up a few years later. Same with the 70 years of Jeremiah. We built church houses and all. We've been over this from 1947. That's when that started and ended in the fall of 2017, 70 years later. Just as Jeremiah's prophecy was of 70 years of building houses, a long captivity, And we've been captivated as a church in Babylon all that time. And have not been to this day released to go to Zion. God gave one voice, as we went over in Isaiah 41, just one, to know this story. If you're looking anywhere else, you're barking up the wrong tree and you're headed somewhere else. You better be careful who you listen to, or you'll get led astray. Now, I'm not bragging. I don't care. 
I just know that God gave what He gave where He gave it. And it's the only place that it is. So, let's look at the facts as they stand. So, was there a connection clear back there in 1981? I think there might have been. And these other prophecies now have all come together, and they did in the fall of 17, at the time Amos's darkness at noon occurred. And I do believe God passed judgment there because he said, after that, down a few verses, there would be death in the streets and no one to bury and we've been moving toward that ever since. And it's getting, the curve is getting wider as it goes. More people dying of this siege that was put on us every day. And the numbers are increasing. And those who are unvaccinated, they're going to begin to lock up or execute. As they are locking them up in Australia and Austria in other places already, and some of that draconian stuff is beginning to happen in a few states in this country. And it will spread. So this thing has been loosed, and there's no stopping it now. We have entered the end time in the fulfillment of all these prophecies. So if those things have lined up, what about some things that might be lining up now that fit with them? And it all has to come out and get lined up and then come to a finale. So if that 40-year siege began in 1981 and ends here, 2021 now gone, 40 years finished, now is it free to move forward as they were free after 40 years to move forward? Now, one voice was heard and a few people listened because there had to be a reception committee. There had to be a preparation crew to prepare a place for God's people to come in the right spot. Right outside the Canaan Mountains. Right up against them. Not entered into the land of Canaan, but right outside it for a period of time until... God releases the people to come. Then all those who are stirred to come will come. But it's open to everybody. Whoever will come. Now, that is an expression that he uses speaking in uh, the last great day of the feast there in John 10. Or 7, whichever it is. Great white throne judgment comes, people are resurrected, and he says, whoever will can come. He isn't calling just a few at that point. He's calling everybody that's been resurrected, and they can come as they will. Now we are seeing a small thing or a small percentage of that or a small fulfillment of that where when he does some signs and wonders, it will be there for the whole church to see. And that's kind of a whoever hears, whoever sees, come. You've all been called. 
Many were called, few will be chosen. So it is a call that goes out to all those that were called. You can now come to the Holy Land. You can now come to the Promised Land. You can come now to Zion and Jerusalem to help build the temple. Ten percent will come. That's all. Ten percent. It's very clear through many, many scriptures. That's all that will come. But the call will be made. Well, when? Haggai gives us a clue where he says there will be a few old men that can compare the former with the latter. It's been a long time. I'm an old man. And I was listening last night to some of the music from the years I was there. And it was quite nostalgic because I saw it then. And I saw what it was. And I saw how wonderful it looked. Beautiful. But it was rotten within. That was the problem. Physical beauty, physical things are not what it's about. It had become about wonderful buildings and jet airplanes. That's what it had become to be about. Instead of true holiness and godliness, which is what God was after. It's what it says in Revelation 3. Now, let's look at that a moment. Revelation 3. This all has to do with the book of Zechariah, by the way. Verse 14, To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, This says the beginning of the creation of God. That's Christ who gave this revelation. He was the beginning of the creation. He was the God always with the Father. He was the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of the New Testament. And he's the Lord of hosts forevermore and King of kings and Lord of lords. That hasn't changed. So he was the beginner. Colossians says, without him nothing was made. So he says to the Laodiceans, I know your works, that you're not cold or hot, you're just there. And since you're not either way, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I love cold beer, I hate warm beer. I love hot coffee. I can't stand lukewarm coffee. It's either got to be cold or hot, depending on what it is, but it can't be lukewarm. Forget that. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. We had all those beautiful buildings. We had the airplanes. We had the churches. We had, it was just wonderful. You listen to the young ambassadors of the chorale singing inspiring music in front of those buildings, and ah, it's gorgeous. And know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked and having singles weekends so that people could find somebody to lay on, having key clubs in some of the churches so that you had a party and then if they threw their keys in a hat, and whosever key you took out is who you went home with. In the church of God, things like this were going on. And that's just to name a couple. Miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
Not everybody was doing all those things by any means. But we're certainly lukewarm in thinking we had everything. God had blessed us so much we had need of nothing. Buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich spiritually, not physically, spiritually, and white raiment, righteousness, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So the whole church was wearing filthy, unrighteous, unholy conduct in our minds and hearts, and then followed by action in some cases. So when Joshua is used in Zechariah 3 as a type of the church, as the high priest, he was clothed in filthy garments because he represented the whole church. So God spews the whole church out and points to him and says, I'm going to clean you up, stay clean. And he tells the whole church, you're filthy, I'm going to clean you up, stay clean. We look at that and say, well, that's just one man. No, that's the whole church he's talking to. The high priest just represented them. Jesus Christ is the high priest of all time, and he is perfectly clean. He doesn't represent the church that way until our change come and we are made white eternally. But in the meantime, a man has to be our high priest on this earth who himself is sinful, who himself is not as righteous as he ought to be, and represents all of us. And that's what it said in the Old Testament that Aaron had to clean his garments, wash his body, and be clean before he could go in as a representative of Israel because they and he were short of the glory of God. So any man who is a high priest of men has to cleanse because he represents the whole dirty bunch. And that's what he says of Laodicea here. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Has he been rebuking and chastening us? How did he treat those out in the wilderness? He gave them enough to sustain them, but he let them wander around until they died except for their kids. And he's let us wander around till most of us are dead, and only a few old men will be able, a few old women too, be able to compare the former with the latter. It's the exact same scenario. Am I really far-fetched on this 40 years of us wandering since essentially our leader was named in 1981 with him sitting right there hearing it? Forty years later, we're on the cusp of the turnaround. Because the 65 years, the 70 years, and the 430 and Amos prophecy have been fulfilled. And he said it would be shortly after, not the echoing of the hills. The 40 years, I think, just ended. Now, if you wait till Mr. Armstrong died five years later to start it, I think it's too late. You think this thing's going to go on another five years now? 
with this nation and the world and the shape it's in, and the amount of people that are dying, and the amount of people that they are going to now starve to death using food as a weapon. Wait till we get to Zechariah. It talks about a red horse speckled red and white. That's death and famine. And that's what this nation and this world are facing as we sit here today. It's already started. It's going. So the 40 years has to be about up in order to match those other prophecies that have come to a completion. This has to be soon. I've gone over time already. We haven't got to specifically Revelation. I mean, uh, Zechariah yet. But I think it's important that we look at this. Now, we got that 40 years. Let me go just a little bit further. No, I won't. I'll save this till next week. Till we get there in the book of Zechariah to bring this other part out. But there's another period of time, or two of them, that I think fit perfectly. So, God willing, we'll talk about that next week, and we'll see. But let's realize that the fast of the tenth month, which is coming up this coming Wednesday, is about the church, the church of the firstborn. Galatians 6.16, Paul referred to the Israel of God, speaking of the church. So Israel, Jerusalem, and Hebrews 12 are all speaking of the end-time church. And it has to do with you and me and that remnant that is still out there that will soon be coming to build God's temple and to build Jerusalem and to prepare it for these things to all come to pass. We're there. And I think all these things coming together show that, plus the events that are happening in the world, you can see, are part of it. Even people in the world are now talking about the mark of the beast being this thing. And now they're going to start putting it in the hands so that you have your COVID vaccination. All you have to do is just move your hand there and you can buy and sell. And if you don't have it, you can't. And you can't eat unless God provides some way. This is, this is being done. It's already being it's already occurring in some places in the world. And it is being planned and processed here. They're just a little afraid to push it too far too fast because we still have our guns. Do you think the Australians wish that 20 years ago they hadn't given up their guns? They're in total captivity now, at the mercy of the government. So are most European nations, and it's coming fast over there. That's the only thing they're afraid of here is our guns. And they're doing everything they can to get them. But some people are going to rebel, and there is going to be a civil war. Jeremiah says so. So we're in this thing. And I don't have any compunctions about starting to point out how the years line up 
because it's beautiful how they all have begun to and how some more appear to be. So what Satan is doing cannot long continue without God doing what he's doing because they all fit together. Okay, that's it for today.